Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, would you meet me in Mark chapter 2? Mark chapter 2, verse 1 through 12 is where we'll be in God's Word together this morning. Uh, as Zachary mentioned, I'm Evan, one of the pastors here. I'm really thankful to be able to worship the Lord uh, together with you this morning. If this is your first time with us, we've been in a sermon series titled Encountering Jesus, uh, where we are looking at different moments in the four Gospels where people's, uh, people have these life-changing moments as they cross paths with Jesus. They encounter him in a variety of ways, but these encounters are meant to point to something. Uh, these are not chance encounters. They are deliberate as Jesus brings the kingdom of God to bear on a world desperate for hope and healing. And so this morning, we will take a look at another encounter with Jesus wherein we will see God's desire to use his authority to bring forth hope and healing that we need in our lives. And so if you're able, I invite you to stand as we read Mark chapter 2, verse 1 through 12. Hear now the word of the Lord. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he, at, and he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. So they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? Uh, Lord, thank you that you, uh, you speak to us. Thank you that when we open your word, you open your mouth. And you transform. And so, Lord, I ask that in this moment, that as I speak to the ear, you would speak to the heart and transform lives. Lord, may the words of my mouth and meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Uh, have you ever thought about suing God? I, I'm, I'm talking literally here. Um, I know throughout history, people have questioned God, even wanted to bring accusation upon God, but have you ever wanted to go so far as to take God to court? 
Betty Penrose did. In 1969, her lawyer filed a lawsuit seeking $100,000 in damages. She blamed God for allowing a lightning bolt to strike her house, setting it on fire. Her attorney called it a careless, negligent operation of the universe. Ernie Chambers also sued God. In 2008, the Nebraska state senator was seeking a permanent injunction uh, against what he called a pattern of harmful activities. The judge dismissed the case because he said that even though God is omnipresent, he does not have a fixed address. And so he could not properly be uh, notified of the lawsuit. Uh, Maybe you think Betty Penrose and Senator Chambers are silly for taking such action against God. Maybe you're feeling inspired um, by them. Uh, Regardless of how you may feel about their actions, what, what Betty and Ernie and maybe some of you in here today have in common is that it's possible to be so disappointed by God's actions, so offended that he does not move and respond to your circumstances in the ways that you think are right, that it can lead you to question and even charge him for his particular, for his peculiar ways. There are times when we come to God and he responds in odd and peculiar ways. He can be odd in how he governs this world, and yet he is the one with all power and authority. As Romans 11.33 says, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. But that doesn't mean we always like his ways, especially when they don't match our ways. And in the moments when that happens in our encounters with Jesus, the question that arises is, will you trust God or will you accuse him? Early on in Jesus' ministry, we we see how often he operated in peculiar and odd ways. By the time we get to chapter 2 in Mark's gospel, Jesus is already gaining prominence and fame because of his miracles and teaching. Mark chapter 1, 22 tells us that the people were astonished at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority. And as we approach chapter 2, we get to see Jesus again teaching with authority and also performing miracles with authority. But this time, Jesus does something peculiar. He does something he has not done up to this point in his ministry. And it is here that we see the first moment of resistance towards Jesus. And it is here that the gospel writer Mark challenges us to follow Jesus rather than our own ways. The story is set up in verse 1 and 2. Jesus' ministry took him all around the area of Galilee, preaching and performing miracles. His ministry began in Capernaum, and the text says he has returned. By this point in his ministry, Jesus has a big name in Capernaum. And it wasn't long before crowds of people swarmed him upon his return. Verse 2 says that so many people came that there was no room anywhere, not even in the doorway. There was overflow getting set up outside his home as people wanted to be around Jesus and space was running out. And then we see a particular person come into focus in the crowd. Someone who's typically overlooked. Someone who is usually not invited to the parties. He, he wouldn't be at the tables of honor and status. No, this person represented the discarded of society. 
Mark does not give us his name, but we know something about his circumstance. He's paralyzed. We don't know his story. We don't know what drives him. We don't know what he heard. But whatever he heard about Jesus, we know he was desperate to get to Jesus. And while everyone else got to be around Jesus, this man is about to have an encounter with Jesus. It's odd. It's odd how this paralytic man comes on the scene because he's not alone. Verse 3 says he's being carried by four men. Again, we know very little about these four men except they were desperate to bring this man to Jesus. And I love that this man has friends that don't just settle for coming to a crowd. No, these friends want him to come to Jesus. Because being in a crowd around Jesus doesn't mean you're encountering Jesus. These four friends, they they see how crowded Jesus' home is. They, They see that they can't make it in. Can you picture them trying to find a way to maneuver around the people? But it's clear every space is full. There's no way we can make it through the crowd. Or is there? Now, I don't know how the conversation went with these guys in verse 4. Well, we, we don't know whose idea it was, but somebody thought going through the roof was the best way forward. I don't know if you ever had a friend like that. They're friends that they don't see obstacles. They just see opportunities, right? We're we going to figure this out. And somehow this group agreed, if we can't walk through the front door to have this encounter with Jesus, we're going to make our own door. And homes at Capernaum had these outside stairways that led to a flat roof that you could use as part of your home, like a deck or a porch. And so these four men carried this paralytic man up onto the roof and started clawing at the beams and the dirt and the thatch and, and the tiles. They're, they're, they're digging and clawing until finally they see an opening. They peer in and say, okay, let's get our friend down there. And they start lowering the bed. Can you see them? Just heave, ho, heave, ho. <laughs> what a sight. What friendship. Can you imagine what's coming down on people's heads as these men are like, this is a good idea. These men were willing to do whatever it took to get this paralyzed man to Jesus. And just a quick side note on friendship. These four men show the power of friendship. Uh, In an age where we are living in a loneliness epidemic, do not underestimate the impact of being in friendships where there is a commitment to carry one another and be carried by one another. In, the, in life's challenges, we all need friends like this. So we get to verse 5, and another peculiar thing happens. It says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, if you're like me, you, you might be saying, uh, that doesn't match. I mean, this man went through a lot to get to you, Jesus, and all you have to say is your sins are forgiven. What about his legs, Jesus? They came for his legs to be healed. Why are you talking about his sins? 
His paralysis was his circumstance, but it wasn't his need. Jesus was looking at his need. And when I first read this story, I projected disappointment onto this man and his friends. I did. It, it, it kind of felt like when you go trick-or-treating and, and you walk up to a house and you hold out your bag so you can get some candy and the person puts a toothbrush in your bag. Y'all ever had that happen? Some of y'all in here do that. Um, or, or, or when, it, you know, you're a kid and it's Christmas and there's gifts all around the tree and you go down and you open the gift thinking there's going to be the latest toy and it's a pack of socks. Anybody ever had that happen? Um, if I'm honest, that's what I felt when I, when I read verse 5. I mean, this man went through a lot, had his friends tear the roof off a house to get to Jesus. And all he has to say is, your sins are forgiven. That's nice, like socks and a toothbrush. But I, I was hoping for a little more. It, it, it felt disappointing to read that. But then I realized I was projecting onto the man that which is not in the text. It doesn't even say that he was trying to get to Jesus to heal his body. I assume that he thought his circumstance was his need. But did he? I mean, it would make sense, right? I mean, that's what Jesus was known for. People have been crowding him because he's been healing people. I mean, the demand got so great that in chapter 1, verse 38, Jesus had to tell his disciples that they were leaving before everybody got healed, which that could be a sermon all by itself. Jesus' disciples came to him and told him that the crowds were looking for more healing, and Jesus said, no. I did not come for that. And then we get to chapter 2. And it opens with this man who is paralytic. But Jesus was not focused on his legs. He was focused on their faith. This is the first moment in Mark's gospel where faith is named. Why is this important? The first words from Jesus recorded in Mark's gospel is chapter 1 verse 15 when he says, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And it's not until this moment, this man and these four friends, that faith is named. The reason Jesus came to earth was not primarily for the man's legs, but for the man's heart. His circumstance does not dictate his ultimate need. And I assumed that this man didn't understand that. I assume that he came to Jesus just for his circumstances to be changed. But maybe he came for his ultimate need. Maybe he heard Jesus' message and he was desperate for a right relationship with God because when it's right with God, it's right everywhere else. He didn't want to settle for healed legs. He wanted a healed soul. We in America feel so entitled to dictate our needs and our circumstances. For some of us, when our circumstances don't seem to align with our need, we bring an indictment. We want to accuse God of mishandling the cosmos. If God was good, he would have healed the man's legs. And we'll get there in a moment because he does eventually heal the man's legs, but not in the way we often assume. But oh, how often do we raise a similar indictment for our own lives? If God was good, my circumstances would be different. 
He would heal my body. He would heal my mind. He would heal my family. He would heal my hurt. And if he doesn't, I want him charged. But we don't see that in the paralytic man. Maybe he thought, if God can do that, forgive my sins, what can't he do? We don't see a lot of him. But one thing we do see is that he had faith along with his four friends. Jesus noticed it and he responded to it by giving him what he needed, the forgiveness of his sins. Faith means that we do not dictate the terms of our healing, but we trust that the one who has authority also has the wisdom to give us what we need. And we get to verse 6, and the scene changes. The paralytic man is no longer in focus. The religious leaders come into focus. The parallel passage in Luke lets us know that these scribes and Pharisees came from every village of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. They came from all over the place to see this Jesus. But as you keep reading chapter 2 and chapter 3, you see that these men were not coming curious or excited or hopeful or faith-filled. They were suspicious of Jesus. They came to Capernaum to scrutinize and dismiss him. And so these religious leaders were in the house. They were listening to Jesus. They saw this spectacle, this paralytic man lowered in, in a hole in the roof, coming to encounter Jesus. And then Jesus says he forgives the man's sins. And the religious leaders had feelings about that. They didn't react with excitement. They didn't react because the man has a spiritual fresh slate. They were not excited about the tabula rasa of this man's spiritual condition. No. Verse 6 says they were questioning him in their hearts. Verse 7 says they think he's guilty of blasphemy. They say who can forgive sins but God alone? Wonderful theological question, terrible response. We should be careful that our theology does not blind us from the reality of Jesus. Jesus gave them the opportunity to connect the dots. Jesus is forgiving sins because he is God, but they missed it. They were okay with him being a good teacher. They were even okay with him being a good miracle worker. But now he stepped over the line because he can't be God, can he? And I love what Jesus does in verse 8. Verse 8 says, He immediately perceived the questioning in their hearts and he responded to them. Again, another opportunity for them to connect the dots. Only God can see the hearts of people, and Jesus sees their questioning and suspicion. He sees the internal lawsuit mounting. He sees the spiritual deposition beginning to unfold, and Jesus calls it out in verse 8. And then he does something else, very odd. He offers a defense of his divinity. He says to them, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven, or rise, take up your bed, and walk. And here's where we see the genius of Jesus Christ. Because we know what's easier to say, don't we? 
your sins are forgiven. We, we know that's easier because it's not exactly observable or verifiable. But to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, that's obviously harder because uh, it is observable and verifiable. It'd be real awkward if Jesus said that to this man and he's still lying on the bed. And then everyone would know that Jesus was a fraud. He would prove to be what C.S. Lewis points out as either a lunatic or a liar. But instead, he shows himself not as a lunatic or a liar, but that he is Lord. In verse 10 and 11, it's really important in showcasing the main point of this story. Look at it with me. He says in verse 10 and 11, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And then verse 12, we see the man get up, take his bed, walk in the presence of the crowd, and everybody is amazed and erupting and glorifying God. It's a wonderful scene, but we find out as chapter 2 unfolds and Mark's gospel continues to unfold that there are some in the crowd that aren't amazed and they don't glorify God. The scribes and the Pharisees. The religious folk miss the point of the miracle. And many of my skeptical friends are in the same boat here. You know, they often say to me, Evan, if Jesus would just do that, just do that, and then I would trust him. Do the quote-unquote harder thing for me, and I would follow Christ. I will only believe God if he does something observable and verifiable like this miracle. And I just tell them, I, you know, I think it's nice that you think that. Um, and, and maybe... But are you sure? I mean, let's say that he would do that for you. And he certainly can and still does around the country and the world. But before he does, have you considered what he's already done for you? Have you considered that he woke you up this morning and put clothes on your back and food on your table? Have you considered that he kept you from danger, seen and unseen, and gives you every single breath that you take? Have you considered that he gave you your job and gave you your house, gave you your family, your car, your education? Have you considered any of that? Or does none of that matter because you think you did all that yourself? Because I wonder if God did do another miracle for you, you would still not believe because he's already done plenty for you. But let's say that God does do one more thing for you. Something fancy like heal paralysis. What makes you different than the Pharisees? Jesus performed the miracles right in their face. And they still walked away saying, I don't believe it. He's just a blasphemer. God has already given us everything we need to trust him and have faith in him. Your breathing in and out is evidence of that. And if he chooses, when he chooses to do another miracle for us, it is an act of his mercy, not your entitlement. So as Pastor H.B. Charles says, we ought to trust God with everything, above everything, in everything, and through everything. So why does he still 
perform miracles. But why did he heal this man's legs? It's because he was not focused on what was harder to say. He was focused on what was harder to do. Sure, it's harder to say in this story, rise, pick up your bed and walk. But it is infinitely harder to do what it takes to forgive someone of their sins. And that is what Jesus was focused on. Because that is what he came to do. He came to give himself as a ransom for many. Healing someone's legs pales in comparison to taking away the sins of the world. And our circumstances serve as an entry point for God to showcase his power and authority over all things, including our sin and death. The healing of the paralytic was, that, was so that everyone would see Jesus rightly. He has all power and authority. He is Lord and he deserves our praise and honor. As we said earlier, how great is our God. And if you do want something that is observable and verifiable, you can look to the cross and the empty tomb. Because it's there that he secured our greatest need and did the hardest thing that no one else in heaven or on earth can do. And it's there that we receive the invitation to be amazed and glorify God. As the songwriter says, my chains are gone. I've been set free. My God, my Savior has ransomed me. And like a flood, his mercy reigns. Unending love, amazing grace. Because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are united in him, to him, in his power. And we are no longer in the grip of the curse of sin. And as he was raised from the dead by God's glory, we too can walk in newness of life. Amen, somebody. Hallelujah. This may be so. That we would come to Jesus with this kind of faith. And find that he holds the power to meet our needs. To give us the hope and healing we long for so desperately. And when the brokenness of this world manifests itself in our lives, in our bodies, in our relationships, he calls us to know that he has authority over that. Even that. And we can know this because he has done that which is harder. And he did it for us. And so the call remains the same. Believe in the gospel and trust God with everything, above everything, in everything, and through everything. So that through our circumstances, we can see his authority to give us what we need in his time and in his ways. May it be so for his glory. Amen? Amen. Amen. Will you pray with me? And so, Lord, we, we ask that you would give us faith. Uh, give us faith to turn to you in all of our circumstances and trust that how you respond is what we need. 
Lord, thank you that when we come to you with our accusations, our fears, our anger, our despair, that you don't flinch. You don't turn from us. But you persist in moving towards us. And you hold out for us the hope and the healing that we need. By your power and authority, would you turn our affections to you? That you would cultivate faith in our hearts to trust you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.